Hiya, handsome. Come to join the party. Hey, party people. Welcome to the Patrama Party, where we wait for our date to show up for a whole hour before realizing we've definitely been ghosted. And you can hear that story on the episode about ghosting. But in the meantime, grab your cute fit and your tissues and let's get into it. I'm your host, Remy Ramirez, and this week we're talking about religious trauma. This is a topic many of you have written to me and requested, but it took me a minute to put some of the pieces together because while I do have some experience with religious trauma, I wasn't raised in a religious household. So I wanted to bring in someone with a different perspective to really get into what this trauma looks like, which means I have a couple guests for this episode. So first up, I'm so happy to welcome Patrama listener and trauma-informed health coach, Brittany Pope to the show. Hi, Brittany. Thank you for coming on. Hi, guys. I'm so honored to be here. Yay. Well, I'm so glad you're here and so grateful to you for being willing to share about your experiences. So thank you. Thank you. And I'm also so glad to welcome licensed marriage and family therapist, Willow Katz, who's going to help give us some insight into what it looks like to heal from religious trauma. Hi, Willow. Welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yay. I'm so stoked you're here. I'm stoked you're both here. And to get us going, let's talk astrology for just a minute. Brittany, you're a Scorpio, which is so great because Scorpios, A, have the ability to go really deep. They're a water sign, so they carry a lot of sensitivity. And B, they're also the one sign that more than any other sign in the Zodiac isn't afraid to look reality straight in the face and walk through the fire. You know, they're kind of at their best, a no bullshit sign healthy Scorpios are like really able to dig into the heart of the matter, which is my favorite thing about Scorpio. And honestly, I could feel that from you just from the Zoom convo we had a while back that you're not afraid to get really honest. But I also know that that must have been a process for you, especially in light of the conversation we're about to have about the way that you were brought up being gaslit in the church. And I can only imagine there must have been you know, a lot of internal struggles between feeling this, you know, being gaslit and feeling gaslit in the church and then feeling your Scorpio energy being like, uh, this is bullshit. Does that, does that resonate for you at all? It totally resonates for me. And I think, um, my full chart speaks to that even further because I'm a Capricorn moon. So I'm also like the no nonsense, you know, very practical. And then I'm a Gemini rising. So I have that duality, of like the both sides of me being, you know, the like super social and also like the super secret introvert. So I feel like I was constantly kind of living that, like struggling internally, feeling like I wanted to be my most bold Scorpio self, but also like practically being like, how is that going to work in this situation? Because it's just going to make my life harder and I need to be able to survive in this family and in this church. So yeah, I definitely think that it definitely shaped who I am. Like I definitely am a, a strong believer in that my Zodiac was for a reason. Yeah. Well, and that's crazy. Um, I see Capricorn. So many of my guests who come on have Capricorn in their chart and Willow will get to your chart in a second because you are a Capricorn. And I, I feel like one of the great things about a Capricorn moon is that they have this ability to, and, and, and let me pause and say so many of 
the therapists I have on have Capricorn moons. And I, I feel like it's this way of looking at the emotional realm, which is what the moon oversees and, and being like, Whoa, this is a mess. (laughs) This is a mess in here. What do I do? How do I restructure it? And that's kind of what I wanted to talk to Willow about too, because Willow, you're a Capricorn, which is an earth sign. And like I said, it likes to organize, it likes order, it likes structure. It's been fascinating to find that over and over again. Like I said, so many therapists have prominent Capricorn in their charts. And so I guess like the way I think about Capricorn with their, when I, when I see therapists, you like with Capricorn in their charts, is this sort of um, desire to untangle knots, you know, it's like creating this order out of chaos. Does that resonate for you, Willow, that feeling that in your work, you're kind of untangling these knots? Yes, that is absolutely accurate. And what's really funny is I had my original website. I also um, sew and knit and things to do with yarn. And my original website was like this tangled mess of yarn that got kind of rolled into a nice neat ball and I kind of really love that metaphor and sort of wish I could revisit that if I have a new website in the future that is so funny that's so funny that those that those metaphors came together that's awesome well I'm so happy to have both of you here I'm going to talk just briefly about my experience on this topic. And while I do that, if either of you have thoughts or feelings or, you know, like peanuts that you want to throw from your gallery, feel free to interject. Or if you just want to chill out, you know, floss, that's totally fine too. Either way, I'll turn things over to y'all once I'm done. How does that sound? That's great. Okay, cool. So like I said, I wasn't raised in a super religious home. My grandma is Catholic and there definitely was some influence from her growing up because she and I are really close. And actually, as an example, one of her favorite stories to tell about me is that when I was like five or something, she took me to mass and I had never been to church before. And when I saw the priest come out, (laughs) I yelled really loudly in this crowd of, you know, very pious, very quiet Catholics. Is that God? Uh, So anyway, Yeah, I wasn't super raised around religion. When I was probably seven or so, my mom started to notice that my sister and I had been ditching Sunday school to go to the park. (laughs) And so she just stopped making us go. She was just like, okay, fine. You don't have to go if you don't want to. And I'll say ditching Sunday school was my sister's idea, but I was super on board for a couple of reasons. One was I was really creeped out by the idea of Jesus Everyone kept telling me that there was this guy who loved me so much and who died for me, but I'd never met the dude, you know, so that seemed odd and didn't feel right to me. It was sort of this like forced intimacy with someone I had never met. And that, and then like that felt really invasive to me, even at an early age. But the other reason I was so into not going was because maybe two weeks into going to Sunday school. One of the Sunday school teachers, a man, sat down next to me and said, Remy, it's so good to see you again. I had so much fun when I went skiing with you and your family. And I had never been skiing (laughs) and neither had anyone in my family that I knew of. So I was like, first of all, also, side note, we lived in Austin. There's no 
fucking skiing in Austin. Anyway, I was like, I've never been skiing. And this guy wouldn't let up. He was like, yes, we all went skiing. It was so much fun. I had so much fun with your whole family. And I just remember feeling so uncomfortable. So when my sister was like, want to pretend we're going to Sunday school, but instead just go to the park that's right next door. I was like, fuck yeah, I do. In retrospect, my opinion is that that dude was fully grooming me. I mean, unless he just confused me with some other little girl named Remy, which you know, that's not what happened. Let's be honest. So I feel really thankful that my sister did that because looking back as an adult and knowing what I know now, it's clear that his behavior was weird and not okay. And I got really lucky, but a lot of people don't get lucky. And as we know, pedophiles have been finding a haven in the church for a gajillion years. We all know about the horrors that have gone on in the Catholic Church where priest after priest has been accused of rape and molestation, and then the church covers it up, moves these dudes to another city, allows them to destroy more and more lives, and denies the existence of the problem entirely while silencing victims. But, you know, the Catholic Church isn't the only one that has done this. It's been a part of most organized religions to some extent. Of course, you know, the Catholic Church has been prolific in its history of covering up for pedophiles and rape, which brings me to this. A few years ago, the Catholic Church finally updated their rule book to say that any clergy member caught raping children would be disrobed. So, you know, they finally got busted so bad that, you know, they had to change some shit up. But when they made this amendment, they simultaneously made a new amendment that if anyone is caught giving a woman any position of power in the church, they would be disrobed. And so would she. So in other words, in the eyes of the Catholic church, as of right now in the year of 2023, it's just as bad to rape a child as it is to give women any power in the church, right? The punishment for those two things is the same. And that kind of takes me into my experience with religious trauma, which is less personal and more systemic. Just about every country has a national religion that has impacted the culture. If you're American, that religion is Christianity. Christianity, you know, is sort of how this nation was formed. And and Christianity is based on misogyny. It's all over the Bible. I go into a lot of this in detail in the episode on the trauma of the patriarchy because there is no separating the patriarchy from the church. But for women in particular who were raised in Christian nations, we're being traumatized by the misogyny inherent in Christianity without even having to be Christian. When I was 14, I was raped by my neighbor It took me 20 years to be able to call it a rape, but that's what it was. And I remember I had a really close guy friend at the time when I was, you know, a teenager. We'd been good friends since middle school. And I confided in him and told him what had happened with my neighbor. I didn't call it rape again, but I told him what happened. And the first words out of his mouth were, oh, you're damaged goods now. No one's going to want you. That idea that women have to stay virgins to be wanted and valuable, that is part of our culture, because, in large part because Christianity is part of our culture. And Christianity is inherently misogynistic, not just in the Bible stories, you know, like the story of Adam and Eve and the Virgin Mary and all that that are just like, you know, 
oh, a woman being horny is the root of all evil. <laughs> and like, oh, we love women when they can, you know, get ghost raped by God and then just be happy about it and, and be devoted mothers after the rape, right? Not just the messaging in these core Christian stories, but also because traditional Christian churches don't allow women to have positions of power within the church. And they often teach women that they must do whatever their husbands tell them. So even when we're not Christian, as Americans, we're swimming in this water because we live in a Christian nation. And by the way, my friend who said that horrible thing to me, he wasn't Christian either. He was Jewish. But again, as Americans, this is part of our culture, regardless of what religion you are. So for me, this moment with my friend is a small part of the bigger picture and this bigger culture. I also want to point out that rape is not listed in the Ten Commandments, which is another way you know that women were not part of that decision-making process. Because while men are also raped, for sure, rapists are almost always cis men. The absence of rape from the Ten Commandments is a huge part, in my opinion, of why we have rape culture in the U.S. I think it's also why, for example, when Brock Turner raped Chanel Miller, and that was a huge um, story, right? A huge headline. A judge gave him a slap on the wrist because that judge was concerned for Brock's future. He wasn't, however, concerned about Chanel's future or the trauma she endured. He couldn't give two shits. So injustices like that are ubiquitous in our country. And I think they're rooted in this idea that rape isn't that big of a deal. And I think that also originates in our culture of Christianity. I'll also just say real quick, you'll hear people argue that the commandment about adultery by default includes rape, to which I say... <laughs> please look up the definition of adultery because it doesn't mean rape. So that's just what I have to say about that. We can't just be out there changing the definition of words to make ourselves feel better about something. I've brought this up before on the pod. A few years ago, I was sexually assaulted by my roommate. At that time, I was in Al-Anon, which is a 12-step program for the friends and family of alcoholics. And I'd had an Al-Anon sponsor for many years, I think like 10 years at that point. She was my mentor, my trusted guide. I looked to her for advice, for support. She was the one person I felt I could go to to really help me navigate my life in a healthy way. When I was assaulted, I talked to her immediately after and told her what had happened. And she told me that what had happened to me, first of all, wasn't that bad. And also that I was partly to blame because I had gone into my roommate's bedroom at night and I was sitting on his bed. <laughs> she told me I needed to take responsibility for my actions and that essentially I was responsible for him getting turned on and assaulting me because I'd gone into his room at night. Again, she wasn't Christian, but this idea that women have this evil, naughty way of seducing men and it isn't men's fault and women need to hold themselves accountable for men making the choice to assault women. That is the Christian origin story, right? Eve gets tempted by the devil. Now she's this evil temptress. And then she tempts poor, blameless Adam and it's all her fault and she is wicked and Adam has no responsibility in the situation. And that's why we can't all chill in a garden. So even though my Al-Anon sponsor wasn't Christian, 
she'd been indoctrinated into this rape culture and into this narrative that women are responsible for turning men on and causing assaults and rapes, right? Like that men can't control themselves. So women are liable for men's choices in their sexual behavior. My sponsor was in her seventies, probably at the time. So in her lifetime, that view was much more prevalent in the culture. I think there weren't things like the me too movement disrupting that narrative. But for me, in this sort of like in the microcosm of the impact of this culture, the blow of having her say to me when I was at my most wounded and most vulnerable and most depressed and grief stricken, having having her put me in that position of being at fault, it went right to my core. I didn't ever get on board with it at all. I didn't think she was right. And actually, I eventually broke up with her as my mentor uh, as a result of it. But it it devastated me. In one of my greatest moments of need, I was abandoned by, at that time, the one person who I thought I could trust the most. And I'll say, I've talked about suicidal ideation many times on here. I recently did an episode on it. During the months following that assault, I experienced tremendous suicidal ideation. And I think a part of that, I mean, obviously a part of it was about the assault, but another part of it was that suddenly my life had been turned upside down and I had lost this person who had been like sort of my compass for 10 years, right? I lost my sponsor and I lost that connection that meant so much to me. So these are just some of the traumatic moments that have played out in my life as a result of being part of a, a Christian culture and a, and a Christian nation. I just want to remind people that so much of the trauma we experience, especially as women, but also 100% queer and trans folks are directly targeted by the Christian church. You know, many Christians are working tirelessly to turn their hatred for the LGBTQIA community into law. So much of that trauma is the water we swim in because it's just ingrained in the culture. The U.S. was created by Puritans, right? Like literally Christian Puritans, the whole city on a hill thing. There is no United States without puritanical Christian values. So even for those of us who weren't raised in religious homes, this is part of our reality. Even though the U.S. touts being, you know, like a sort of secular nation, the truth is it's not. <laughs> and I think that's becoming more and more the case. And we've seen that more and more the way that um, books are being banned and, you know, these laws against trans folks are being put into place. All of these, you know, the Ten Commandments being put up in classrooms in certain states. So even for those of us who weren't raised in religious homes, this is part of our reality. And these are threads in the fabric of our trauma. Okay, Brittany, I want to turn things over to you. Unlike me, you were raised in a super religious family. Your grandfather was the leader of a church. Your entire family is religious. So let's get into it. You and I talked at length about your experiences being raised in the church. So let's start with this. Tell us about your experience with what you called purity culture and about how that created perfectionism in you. Yeah, thank you so much for everything that you shared, too. Um, I know it definitely affects us all, whether it's to a direct extent or not. 
in my case, the purity culture that I experienced, it was so insidious that it was kind of like a goldfish doesn't know that it's wet kind of thing. I was sort of swimming in it. In our church, it was sort of like known that, you know, women were supposed to do kind of what men thought they should do. And that meant like little girls grew up. And then as soon as they had boobs, it was like this very shameful thing. They needed to be covered, held down in bras. They needed to be wearing shirts that had higher necklines. Like, and it was immediate, you know, for me, I started developing super young. So I always sort of felt like I was doing something wrong just by maturing. I had really thin blonde cousins that, you know, didn't get the the boobs that I had and they were all gymnasts they had different shaped bodies and they could wear clothes that I wasn't even allowed to wear because it was just assumed that if you're showing cleavage of any kind or if your clothes are form-fitting that's you trying to call attention to yourself that's you trying to make men falter that makes it more difficult for men to focus you know it's the same reason why we have like dress codes in public school it's the idea is that there's uncontrollable men and women need to behave and and change how we do things to make sure that men can control themselves. Like they don't have to have any self-discipline whatsoever. So it was really just baked into the cake. And then as I became like coming up into sexual maturity, I remember things like I was living with my grandparents when I was in high school and I had to like sneak birth control, sneak sex toys and stuff into the house. Like once I was like old enough to like want them, you know, it wasn't like it was a conversation that was allowed to be had. And it wasn't even like I was interested in sex in any kind of way, but there was a sort of feeling that like I had to pretend virginity was really important to me and not having sex was really important to you, even though it actually wasn't like it was this weird cognitive dissonance of like, I was like horny 14 year old and I was interested in boys and I was trying to figure out what my own sexuality was and masturbation, all those things. But I couldn't like because that was the wrong thing to do so I had to pretend and play sort of a character and like be dissociated from my own words and actions because in our church it was like you don't want to sin because then you're going to fall short of the glory of God and even thinking about sinning is sinning so it's like that's literally a a bible verse it's like if your arm causes you to sit your hand causes you to sin like lop off your whole arm so the idea is like if you commit this sin in any way it's like better to go without the limb that makes you want to sin than to sin, you know? And that is sort of like the golden sin of women is like, we make ourselves lustworthy to men. And so it was just something that I carried internally all of my life. I don't remember a scenario wherein I wasn't constantly worried about how long my skirts were, how high my shirts were, how my body was like impacting other people. That is, I mean, that's sort of exactly what I was just talking about, how it's so ingrained in us. And the and the fact is like, yes, you had a lot of that in the church. I had way less of it, but I still experienced it because I like, like you said, it's this experience of the water that you swim in. It's, you know, the gold, the goldfish that doesn't know she's wet. It's just the reality that you live in 24 seven. And the thing that I'm really interested in particularly in your story is this perfectionism piece and how the way that you described it was this sort of like cognitive dissonance from your own feelings. Can you kind of talk about the perfectionism piece that happened for you? Yeah. So I think, you know, we had talked about how like the only story I remember around virginity that was like painted to me, which is like supposed to be, that's how you're the perfect woman is if you like retain your virginity. Right. And my aunt baked a a nine by nine of brownies and she pulled one out. And she's like, 
hey, if I like shove my knife in it once, like you might still want to eat it. If I shove my knife in it twice, you might still want to eat it. But if I shoved it in a bunch of times, then like, it, and she showed us like, there's like this crumpled up brownie that was falling apart. And so that was like the gross brownie that no one wants, the reject brownie. And the, the idea was like that, if you didn't stay whole and perfect and virginal, you were valueless. So the idea was like, there was no ability to make mistakes. There was no ability to like figure out what it is that you were in this world or like question your parents and fail and like make mistakes. It was just like, you're held to the standard, whether it's, you know, do not lie, do not steal, whatever. It really felt like it was, I don't remember feeling the pressure of like, don't lie or don't steal or any of these other weird 10 commandments. I felt so much more pressure around like sexual chastity and like how that is your value as a woman. And when you live in a woman's body, you know that there's more to you than your sexuality. Like, you know, like I have a brain, I have interests, I have hobbies. Even now, like on dating apps, when guys will be like, oh, you're really attractive. I'm always like, I think my looks are the least interesting thing about me, but thanks. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, totally. cool, check that off the list. You're attracted to me, great. <laughs> but I really feel like that it, that almost seems like it's part of that that chauvinism that's kind of baked into our culture where it's like, of course, you have to be appealing to me, you know, my view, and you have to be aesthetically pleasing, like, that's the most important thing about you. And so like, I think that drove this feeling that if I was like falling short of that, of that chastity, or of that, like of doing what God and Jesus would have me do. I also really love that you touched on that forced intimacy. And I don't know if it's because you didn't have a good dad, because I would, I would be willing to bet it had something to do with that. Because I'm like, I don't even know what the feeling is in a human form to have a good relationship with a man. So I was to have a relationship with Sky Daddy, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, I I think that the church does a lot of forced intimacy stuff in a lot of different ways, but especially with this idea of Jesus who died for you. It's like, if you weren't raised around that and then you are exposed to that idea, it's a very off-putting idea. Like, I've never even met this guy. What are you talking about? Um, but one thing that I, I, first of all, and also I love, I love when people say sky daddy, it makes me laugh every single time. But the other thing that I was thinking as you were talking was there's this double standard, right? That is so confusing for girls and women in the church, which is like, do not make your body the focus, hide your body. It's not like hide, hide it away. It's, it shouldn't be the focus. We don't want men to look at it, right? Like hide it away. But then at the same time, it's like your virginity is the focus. Your sexuality is the focus. And it's like, well, fucking which one is it? You know, is it like my body doesn't matter or my body matters the most? And, and it's this contradiction, right? Because just like you say, I love that you brought in this piece. Cause I think this probably is another piece of religious trauma for us, particularly as Americans and really in any other um, Christian-based nation or family, <laughs> that women aren't fully human. And this is why they, like, for example, in, in traditional Buddhism, women are not allowed to be monks because they can't reach enlightenment. That's the theory. Women can't reach enlightenment, so they can't. So th it's not just Christianity. And that's the thing I really want to, like, make sure is clear. You find this everywhere, this idea that women aren't fully human with feelings and needs. And um, like you said, intellectual endeavors, et cetera. Yeah. What did you want to say? 
I was just going to say, when you brought that up, I wanted to talk to you about that. That's the reason why, you know, don't rape women isn't in the Bible, because women were property. There are biblical stories about men offering their daughters to, like, angel beings for sex services. Oh, you want my best virgin of all my daughters? Like, I'll just give it to you, because the sanctity of a woman's body was nothing. It was literally like the same thing as like, you could also give, let someone ride your horse. Women were foundationally not looked at as autonomous, full humans. So therefore, yeah, why would there be a rule about rape? It was like sanctioned overtly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. Uh, One thing that I'm noticing is like, there's this, all this focus on chastity and purity and everything. But at the same time, the other major message that we get is men want to sleep with us. Men want to sleep with us all the time and they're after it and they're going for it. And so it's kind of like this, well, which is it? You know, and I thought, and I'm going to garble this, but um, gouge out your eye if something offends thee or something. Like, what about men gouging out their eyes when they are tempted? You know, but it's totally directed towards the woman for having done the tempting just by existing. Right. I think there is a verse somewhere uh, where Jesus tells Jesus tells men, um, if you, you know, if you feel lustful, like if your eye brings you less gouge out your eye, I think he does say that somewhere, but like the, the interesting thing, by the way, I think Jesus like for, from, from what I know, sounds like a pretty cool dude. And I especially like that he said that, (laughs) but, but the interesting thing is that within the organization of Christianity and, and most religions, like that's, that's not talked about. That's not that there's no like Catholic priest at the altar telling men, if you feel lustful, gouge out your eye, you know what I mean? Like, and that's another piece of religious trauma, I think, is that there's this picking and choosing about what fits their agenda, which is often a misogynist, racist agenda <laughs> and queer phobic agenda and using those little pieces to really, I mean, I think it's happened so much with abortion. There's nothing in the Bible about abortion, you know, it doesn't say, it doesn't say anything about abortion. It's certainly not a commandment, but it's so politicized. And that, I think that's also another piece that we probably won't get into, but religion is so politicized in our country now that there's this curating, right? Curating the information in order to support whatever agenda they have going on. So yeah. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that piece in too, Willow. I think one of the reasons so many people seek out religion is for a sense of belonging. But Brittany, that was the opposite of what you experienced. Your experience involved a lot of shame being instilled in you, especially around your sexuality. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So there's this sort of feeling of like we all belong to the family of God. We're all brothers and sisters. And that's sort of like the overt messaging. But the covert messaging is like you have to match what we think a biblical woman would be. Right. So like how you dress, how you talk. I know I had my relatives that I was telling you about that were they were very meek and mild and quiet and ate slowly and ate less. So there was this idea that like I was I talk too loud. I ate too much. Like I was not feminine enough. And it wasn't like, oh, well, you're feminine by virtue of being a woman. You just get it. It's like, no, you you aren't because you're not this like idea that we have, which of course is like this sort of very overtly conservative idea of what feminine is. 
And that was peddled as it was God's truth, not an opinion, not a conservative truth. Like this is God's truth of how a woman is supposed to be. And it was just this continual feeling that like, I wasn't good enough. Like I wasn't feminine enough. I didn't, I wasn't chaste enough. I liked boys. I overtly had a boyfriend in high school. Like I was the one always like doing the wrong thing, even though what I was doing was completely developmentally normal and very typical. I felt like I was doing the wrong thing. I had a cousin who literally was virgin until she was like 25. And she got married, I think, to either to the guy she lost her virginity to or like the ne- very next guy after that. Because it was like, it was such a high price tag on like, you have to stay pure. And and I didn't fit into that because it just didn't make sense inside my body. And so I was just very ashamed of myself. Like I always felt like I was the problem. There was something wrong with me. And it really drove me to make a lot of choices that, um, I mean, I guess I could say, I hate to say regret because they were all learning learning um moments but there was a situation where i had like an internet aim aol instant messenger for those of you who are too young to know what that is a boyfriend who like i would talk to on aim and like i was like sending him nude photos and i had this laptop full of my 15 16 17 year old nude photos which again i'm not advocating it's technically child pornography i really hope that my children make much better choices than i made as a child but in my mind, I was so ashamed of who I was. And there was no one there to tell me that my feelings were normal and how to handle them in a healthy way that I just subverted them into making really, in my opinion, super unhealthy choices. And I was like sending these photos out, whatever. And then my dad ended up finding them on my computer, which I think was sort of helped along by my stepmom who resented me and thought that my dad liked me more than her, some really weird shit. And so he found these photos and was so mad at me, like ordered me to come home, uh, was like screaming at me, told me that like I was going to be punished for months, you know, because of this huge wrongdoing. And then his ultimate punishment was I was going to have to show my pastor grandfather these photos of myself, these naked photos of myself. And I, I'm so glad that it was so long ago and that the pain isn't fresh in me because when I think back to how, like, it was like a dark night of the soul. Like when I look back over the course of everything that's happened to my life, even my divorce, I can say I truly grieved less over my actual whole divorce as a human being. I grieved less over death of people than I grieved in that moment because I was so ashamed of myself. I felt like what I had done was so deeply wrong, so deeply wrong, like they, uh, like truly that my soul was darkened. I was no longer a child of God. God didn't want me. Jesus couldn't save me from this horrible thing, even though they would overtly say, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. It was like, no, but you still have to show your pastor and completely shame yourself. Your pastor, who is also your grandfather. Yes, yes. Just want to point that out. Yeah, so it's funny because like we, you know, uh, Remy, you and I talked about this earlier, but all of my trauma kind of overlaps because my family of origin also extended to my church family so there was a lot of like it was double it was like we're shaming you because we're just bad people and we're sick and toxic and untherapized and also we belong to this church which is like sort of an organizational shaming (laughs) so it was like super it was super horrible and it was double like double the impact and um my grandpa who obviously was sane enough to be like this is crazy i don't want to see this teenagers nude photos but didn't want to overtly stand up to the other man and say because obviously i couldn't say it as a woman i had no place in that saying this is wrong and you shouldn't be doing this to me and you're defiling me and i'm gonna tell someone or you know nothing like that 
I, he just was like, oh, you don't have to do it. I'm going to let you off the hook this time. But just know that like men don't want women like that. Your grandfather said this to you. Yeah. Yeah. Men don't want women like that. And then that's like a twofold insult because it's like the most important thing is that you should be wanted by a man. And also the number one most important thing in your life, you've now fallen short of at the ripe old age of a teenager. <laughs> so just pack it up now. Yeah. And the dysfunction also, and I, and I think it was really powerful that you brought this in the dysfunction of having your father tell you that you have to show naked photos of yourself to your grandfather. And the way that that parallels what you were talking about earlier about women, like, Oh, this is my horse. You can just ride it. The way that it was just like you as a human, that's not what matters. It's that your sexuality is afoot <laughs> and the level of sick and toxic that it is to tell a child she has to show these sexual naked photos of herself to her grandfather, right? Like the level to which that communicates to you that you don't matter as a person. And what you said was so valuable. You said something like, um, it's, I was just a woman. There was no way I could say you, you had no power. You can, you're, and you're a child, right? So you, you know, you're 16 or whatever it is to say like, you, you're defiling me by doing this. And I think so many times in the church, especially with women, what we learn is you don't have autonomy. You don't have agency. You don't have power. We're making these decisions for you. Like you knew in your gut that the situation was fucked but you couldn't do anything about it. And I mean, I'll say for so many of us who grew up in abuse, that was what we experienced, right? And I think as children, that's often what we experience. but there's this added piece for you that's like getting into the core of your sexuality, your body, and and this like familial th thing, right? And I, and I think it's this other um, piece around forced intimacy, it's sort of when you when you think about these core aspects of the church, they're not contained. And what I mean by that is you might have this Bible story and it's just a story, right? But it leaks into the fabric of our lives and it does it in a way that sometimes we're not even conscious of. No one had to say directly to you, you don't have power or agency or autonomy as a woman. But the stories show that. And so that leaks out into all of these different, it manifests in all these different ways. For you, it was a lot more overt because you were in a Christian home and a Christian family. For me, it was the culture that was telling me this stuff. Thank you so much for sharing that story. Cause I know like, what if, yeah, of course you grieve tremendously. That's, uh, it's unbelievable. It's really unbelievable. Yeah. I didn't really say this to you before, but I'm going to say it to you now. Cause I think it's really important. Like, you're the first person I realized. I don't even think I actually ever told my mom. Like, I think you might be the first person that I ever told that story to. Because it really just, I like, it's like almost one of those things. It's like, it was so horrible when it happened. And I knew that what was happening was wrong, but I didn't know what to do with it. So I think I just dealt with it, grieved it the best I could. And I've been grieving it through somatic release and therapy and all the things that I've been doing, but of course not directly. And you're the first person I think I told that to. And so like, now it's really beautiful for me that other people will hear 
this story, I mean, including potentially family members who don't know that this happened um, and, and know that like the level of sort of like sick disconnectedness that you experience as a person who is in a faith tradition where everything is sort of held together by like, we're a secret little family and like, this is our special club. We're not into outsiders. This is our special, we're believers and we're not of the world. This It's so sub-communicated. Like you were saying, it's not overt. It's not like, you have to keep this a secret and you're just a woman and what do you matter? It doesn't have to be overt. It's sub-communicated in all of the small ways where women didn't hold these important positions and women didn't do this and like the way women are treated generally and what was expected of women that like you just knew this doesn't matter and so you that's why you don't have to have overt abuse and you don't have to tell women don't do this don't do that because in the way those things are structured women won't even speak out like the fact that I didn't tell that story for 15 years because I was just like well that's just the thing that happens to people sometimes when they're in abusive homes and horrible churches like as if that's normal right yeah holy shit Brittany I didn't know that you hadn't told anyone else that I think that secrecy is a piece of this bigger part that I actually am going to get into with Willow later but it's the way that these churches take you from your inner knowing they steal you from what you know in your gut is true. And I think what happens so often, I mean, it's that's also that also happens in abuse, but I think like it's often, you know, the church and abuse go hand in hand. But when you have this entity or this organization looming over you, telling you this is the truth, this is the absolute truth. And if you don't align, you will burn in hell, <laughs> right? Like there are serious consequences for not aligning, but you in your gut know that that's, it's not aligned with you, right? Like I won't say it's, I mean, I don't think it's right. I will say it's wrong, but it's not, but more to the point, it's not aligned with you and your truth and who you are. It becomes this abusive pattern of you not being in connection with yourself, of you not knowing who you are and what your needs are and what is true for you and what you value. All of that gets kind of taken away from you because it's being imposed on you from this outside source. That's the most important thing that I think that I learned in the most negative way. But the most important thing I learned from being raised in the church in the family that I was, was you can't trust your inner knowing. Your inner knowing is wrong and you should make an extrinsic point of truth that you can turn to. You need to go to the Bible. You need to go to Jesus. You need to go to God. You need to go to your pastor, not to yourself. You don't know anything. And that was the most impactful and most horrible thing I learned. And that kind of brings me to this other question, because this was one of the things that we sort of talked about uh, when we chatted the other day. You definitely, you talked about how you learned that you couldn't trust yourself. You also learned that you couldn't trust others. So can you kind of talk about that, about how the church and being in the church disrupted your ability to trust just in general? Oh, yeah. So you've talked about on the show before how codependence sometimes manifests as like the hyper independence, like the, I can't trust anyone. I'm in this alone. And so I think that's what happened to me is that I went, I can't trust anything inside of myself because that's what I'm being told. And I need to believe that for survival. 
So you just adopt that so you can like not die. And then I learned that when I tested what anyone was telling me, right? Like if you have sex, you're going to burn in hell and all this stuff. And I was like, I like sex actually. So I was like, okay, so that's not true. So what is true? And I was like, I couldn't trust myself. I couldn't trust outside. And it, it really steals your ability to have integrity and to have real virtue. Because real virtue is something that you is tested, that you learn, that you learn from your own mistakes, that you learn from others, that you watch people you admire. And that's kind of how you get real integrity and virtue. And it's like, I didn't have the opportunity to learn any of those things because I couldn't trust other people and I also couldn't trust myself. And so I do think that state of dissociation that I was constantly in, it took me in, way into adulthood to ever unravel that and be like well who the fuck am i what do i believe what's actually important to me what if anything can i take from jesus or from the bible and it's like do i throw out the whole thing is it all of it bad because these people are bad and it was really hard for me to piece that together for myself very destabilizing and one of the things that you said that that i thought was so interesting when we talked was that um and i did this makes sense to me and it also like i remember having friends who were their families were really religious and, and like feeling like I was a black sheep that they're, that my friends kind of weren't really allowed to hang out with because I wasn't part of their church. But you said that you were taught that people in the world, like people outside of your church are trying to lead you to sin. And so it was like, you couldn't trust yourself, but you also couldn't, you couldn't trust the world around you. But part of your inner knowing that you had sort of individual of the church was that you couldn't trust the church because you knew that they were lying to you about things. So can you kind of like illustrate what that looked like? For me, what it really looked like was I didn't attach myself to the church in the sense like I could see them as as bringing all the truth into my life the way that other Christian kids did like I wasn't like oh yeah as long as I like do what the Bible says I'll be fine for life like I never really adopted that because it just didn't feel true inside but I also knew I performatively had to do that so when I would meet friends and like they would be cool people or like I had a friend that was a Wiccan in high school and I remember just thinking she was so nice and she was so kind to other people and she was always, she would like split her lunch money with kids who didn't have lunches and I was just like, wow, she's such a kind person and I would come home and I had this really conservative, aggressive dad who'd be like, he should earn, do some yard work and he should figure out how to get that money for himself. You know, it was like, it was almost like there wasn't that soft, loving sort of G, what I would call Christ consciousness, Jesus energy of like, give to the people in need and feed the homeless, you know, there wasn't that. And because there wasn't that, I feel like I didn't really know where to fit, but I knew that it was something else. Like I knew if it wasn't inside of me and maybe I didn't know what was right, other people weren't telling me what was right either. So I kind of like had to sort of forge my own way and that was really confusing. Like most children have a guide of some kind and I just literally didn't. <laughs> yeah. You know, when we talked, you didn't use the words anxiety or despair, but you said something that really stopped me in my tracks and you said it sort of again in part a second ago or a minute ago, you said you learned that you had to perform goodness in order to have eternal life, perform goodness in order to have eternal life, which I think speaks to what you were just talking about. Because like you, like you said before, you were 
taught that thinking about doing this in was the same thing as doing it. Right. So you're constantly having to just sort of like put on this show that you're never thinking about masturbating or you're never thinking about whatever the fuck it is. For me, like hearing that, that would, that would create incredible anxiety in me and a deep sense of despair because that's such an impossible standard to live up to. Did you experience a lot of anxiety and despair growing up? What's sad about that is no, not really. I always say it's like sort of despair deferred because I didn't really feel my feelings because I always learned that that would make it worse, right? If you were miserable about being forced to go to Sunday school drunk at 19, then you would suffer worse consequences. So it was like, well, I'll just suck it up and do it because it's what's required of me. And so I didn't feel a lot of anxiety and despair at the time. I think it manifests in like a lot of autoimmune stuff that I have now. And a lot of the things that I've like been working through as an adult, because it's like almost like my body's finally gone from that like extreme tense state to sort of like that rest and digest. And so when you go into that, like kind of really for the first time, I feel like I spent most of my life and this is completely genuine, most of my life in fight or flight the moments where I was not in fight or flight were few and far between. So to like get to a place where you're consistently in that parasympathetic calm nervous system space, it's like that now is when I'm feeling the despair, if that makes sense. Like now is more when I feel like, oh, I just cry for things that I'm like, I'm not really sure why, or if I'm doing like deep stretches and yoga, I'll just ball my eyes out. And I have to just accept this is all stuff that has, never had a space to be let out. It's not about now. It's not about what's in front of me. And that's been really difficult. And I'm, and I'm kind of thankful, you know, that my 12 year old self was, was able to survive it because I know it could have been much worse if I was just breaking down constantly. And luckily that I know now that my eternal life isn't resting on what I do today or what I think about, or if I masturbate or not, thankfully now, if I'm crying and I don't understand it, I can go, it's little me who didn't have anywhere to put this. And I have a lot of, um, I have a lot of respect for becoming whole as I become an adult, but I, I, you know, thankful that I really didn't feel a lot of anxiety because that fear I had of like burning forever, by the time I had space to feel that I'd already kind of realized that it was fake. So now I just had more pain for the version of me that was trying to hold myself to that perfection. Wow. Brittany, I can't thank you enough for opening up and sharing your experiences with me and with everyone and with Willow. And I'll, I'll just say, I'm so happy for you that you've been able to veer left and create a new life for yourself. Right. And like, like the use, I want to use your language that you just use, create this wholeness, come into your wholeness, come into your entire being outside the church. I know it's so hard. That process is so hard. And so thank you again for letting us see a little bit of that process. Willow, how are you doing over there? I'm great. It's been really um, educating uh, listening to Brittany talk because I didn't grow up in Christianity. And when you had initially asked me about religious trauma, I had said, that's not my life experience. And it actually really was my life experience. My grandfather on my dad's side was Orthodox Jew. And um, when my dad married my mom, 
excuse me, I'm surprisingly getting a little emotional talking about this, but um, he was disowned and they never met me, even though she had converted prior to them getting married. So I'm trying to seek out something positive about religion, you know, amongst this conversation, because um, I'm thinking about uh, queerness, my queerness, and how it's really okay, maybe, if you're indoctrinated and you tick all the boxes, you know, like maybe you can end up okay. But for many people, most people, Brittany included, that really wasn't the case. And that's when you encounter problems. Yeah, I think, you know, I think there are people who live their whole lives in the church. You know, maybe that works for them. Whether or not they go on to harm other people is another question. And thank you for bringing in a piece of your history, because, yeah, I've watched some documentaries about Orthodox Jewish folks, and and it is a very intense, it's very intense, very rigorous and very controlling. So thanks for, for bringing that piece into. Let me start with this question. What are some of the biggest ways that you've seen religion traumatize your clients? I mean, basically any way that they don't fulfill the prescribed ways of being, you know, um, so many of my clients are gay, bisexual, transgender, and um, many people are just flatly rejected by their families of origin and really lost and needing to seek out other people who accept them. And a lot of people, this is the reason why a lot of people aren't out for years and years, even when they're aware that something's going on, um, on some level, even if it's not really conscious of like, oh, I'm gay. And it has ripple effects because if people get married and have children, and then in their 50s or 60s or earlier are like, oops, you, you know, I mean, it, it, it has profound ripple effects. And a lot of people really seek out queer counselors for that reason, because they fear either explicit or implicit judgment from people. Yeah, I think this aspect of rejection you know, as Brene Brown says, we are wired for belonging. And this kind of also goes back to what Britain and I were talking about just now, but like when who you are at your core is counter to what this pillar of goodness supposedly is telling you, you need to be. I think it's not just like the agony of being rejected by family and being rejected by the culture and being rejected by the family of the church, right? This other sort of family, but also it's about rejecting yourself. Cause I think so many people, especially queer folks end up rejecting themselves as a result of the church. And that I, th I think it just, it drives this stake right to the core of your being. So, yeah, I think that the rejection, 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 
from the community and rejection of the self. That's really big. And I wanted to ask you, Brittany, when we talk, you know, she brought in this, this phrase of purity culture. And I wanted to ask you, how does purity culture impact mental health? People are going to fall short. I think it's just impossible not to fall short. Like if we think about purity culture, just in terms of masturbation, for example, I guess in theory, it's possible for people to get to a marriageable age and not have masturbated, but I think it's really rare. And so it becomes this thing that is inextricably linked, you know, this thing that's supposed to give you pleasure and promote happiness and a sense of well-being and positivity. And it's just inextricably linked with shame. And it just does a profound amount of damage to people who are just trying to live their lives and do natural exploration. I mean, masturbation is a natural function that people engage in. And so is sex. It makes me wonder if sexual abuse and sexual assault would be so common if it wasn't so linked to shame in our society. Oh my God. I completely agree with that. I mean, I I think that the reason why the Catholic church has, has the history of pedophilia and rape that it does is because priests aren't allowed to have sex and nuns aren't allowed to have, you know, like I think there is truly a way that to your point that the church separates separates from your separates you from yourself emotionally and separates yourself you from yourself in terms of your knowing separates the you that knows and the you that belongs right those are two separate yous um but also separates us from our physical bodies i mean i say us but i mean i'm not religious but i think it this way of tearing you away from your body so that you have you have the emotional shame, but you also have this, all this physical shame wrapped up in the body. And I think shame from a mental health perspective is so dire and it's so, man, it just really fucks us up. You know, <laughs> like, I don't know the technical term for that, but it just really fucks us up. It's so deep. And it's so, and especially when this is like something that you have been indoctrinated into from an early age, it's really hard to extract. I think when people say like, oh, I'm a recovering Catholic or, you know, I'm a recovering Baptist or whatever it is, that is so real. Having to really do work to relieve yourself of that shame and come into the other side of that. Yeah. I think that is a massive thing, which I guess kind of, kind of brings me to this question. How can people who are recovering from the trauma of religion learn to come back to themselves, right? Like to trust their own inner knowing and their own compass when that's something that they've never done before. Well, part of that, I think has to do with modeling from people in your life. If it's friends, if it's other non-religious family members, if it's an accepting therapist, it has to be allowed and culturally condoned in certain respects to be aware that you might not fit the mold and that that's okay. And I mean, I don't think that that can happen in a vacuum. 
I don't think it can happen without some kind of support. Because if you're just sitting out there being like, everybody's telling me I'm going to hell and I don't have anything, any support system telling me otherwise, you know, you're going to have a, a real problem. And that's why I think role models in the queer community and the therapist community who say, no, you know, fundamentally, we have to be true to ourselves. And this whole thing about a punitive God was an invention. Yeah, it sounds also too like, like the way that you recover from religion is the same way that you help someone recover who's been in a cult. <laughs> you know, what you just said, this idea of a punitive God was was an invention, right? In a sense, it's make-believe. In the same way that people in cults are made to believe that this person who's often just like a narcissist is a prophet or an extension of God or like, you know, the second coming of the Messiah or whatever the fuck. Actually, it was just something that someone came up with. And I think as part of the healing process, I love this idea of healing and community. It's something we've talked about on the pod before joining with the people who, who get you, who support you, who see you if you're part of the LGBTQIA community, finding that community. And if you're not finding the people who are on your team the way that you are. And I think, I think part, part of this question of like, who am I? One thing that came to mind for me while we were talking about this was having to get really into the core of what your values are, understanding that your values can be different from what you were taught that they should be. And I think working with a therapist, I mentioned this on another episode recently, but my therapist and I just did a values quiz where we like, we were like, what are my values? What are my values? I think when you come out of the church, part of this recentering and going in and being like, I'm an individual with individual needs and wants and desires. Like, what are my values? It could look like sitting with a therapist and talking about what are the things that bring me joy? What are the things that I really don't like? What are the things that I want more of in my life? What are the things that I aspire towards? Like, who do I look at and go like, oh man, they're really doing something cool and I want to do that. What is that about? Like, I'll give an example for anyone who's doing this work right now or wants to do this work. Years ago, I went to, what would I call it? It was like a inspirational, emotional intelligence seminar that lasted like two or three days. It was with this guy named um, Kyle Cease was his name. He was a comedian turned inspirational speaker. And I liked it because he was funny. But one thing that he had us do was turn to a stranger and explain what is the legacy that you want to leave behind you? What is the thing that if you had all the money and all the time in the world, that you would you would want that to be at least part of the thing that you are remembered for when you're gone or that you did for the world. And this was, you know, way before this podcast. Uh, this was probably like 2015 or something. I turned to my partner and I said, I want to be part of normalizing emotions. I want it, I want my legacy to have something to do with 
a culture of normalizing vulnerability and normalizing intimacy. And um, that was really powerful for me. I mean, I said those words and then many years later, you know, started this podcast. But I think that is one way that another way maybe that we can come back to ourselves is to have these conversations about values. Um, So I wanted to offer that to you. Willow, that brings me to my last question for you, which is what are some of the ways to make connecting with a higher power feel safer for those who were abused by the concept of God? And this is Brittany's question. So thank you, Brittany, for this. And, And Willow, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, that's a tricky one because especially where I encounter that most is in people who are trying to attain sobriety. Um, and, you know, the, obviously the most common method for that is AA type groups. And they really hold a lot of um, higher power is the thing, right? You kind of give yourself over to that. And a lot of people who either grew up atheist or uh, avoided um, their own religious indoctrination as an as adults that grates for them they don't they don't want to pursue it even if it might be helpful and it's really hard for me to say no give it a go anyway you know because I mean it just it's it's not going to work for some people and that's why there are other methods like smart recovery that don't involve that. For me, as a person who was not raised with religion, I kind of feel like a higher power can be whatever I decide it should be, whatever I want it to be. I have autonomy in that. And and the most important thing is that my concept of a higher power doesn't involve prescriptive behavior. It doesn't involve being punitive. It, it has more to do with the collective, um, society as a collective, and the community as a whole, and what's best for everyone. And what's best for everyone is to be authentically themselves. And so for some people, it's not necessary to connect with any kind of a higher power. And I kind of want to really have a lot of respect for that. But, you know, I mean, we're all part of this universe and I don't know what happens after we die. I don't think there's a heaven or a hell, but, you know, I think it's important that we're good to each other and true to ourselves. It sounds like a key part of what you're saying, if let's say someone does want a connection with God, right. But they've been raised in the church and they have this idea that God is this, first of all, a man, but also like a man who hates you also (laughs) like will turn on you in a second. Right. And I think sort of to your point, a key part of this is redefining the nature of God for each of us and using our core personal values in that process. I think maybe the hardest thing about recovering from religious trauma is that you're suddenly having to understand spirituality as an individual, organic, unique experience, rather than as an indisputable blanket statement that must be true for absolutely everyone or else, you know, or else, or else you're going to hell. There's a realization, you know, that living a spiritual life is something that you co-create 
with the world around you, right? You're, it's not like you said, prescriptive. It's not, it's not being imposed on you. It's something that you take an active part in and you, you look into your heart, feel your core truth. Maybe for example, that love is not about punishment, but about celebration of individuality, right? Like that could be your sort of mission statement for your, the way that you believe that God operates in your life. And then you use that for your new definition of God, this benevolent force that seeks to love and celebrate each of us, right? Like that could be an example. But I feel like a huge part of this is, you know, it's about redefining God, as you kind of alluded to. And I think it's also about redefining love. The other thing that I thought of as you were talking was that God is presented like God loves you, but also God will send you straight to hell the instant you fuck up. So there's this God piece, right, that we want to redefine, but also the love piece, right? Like, what does it mean for God to love me? I think one of the reasons abuse is so common in hyper-religious households is because the way that God's love is illustrated in many religions is actually toxic and abusive, right? That idea that, like, if you masturbate, God will stop loving you or, or you know, if you lose your virginity or whatever it is, this fear that like, you're not part of God's love anymore, or however that's dictated or modeled. And that model of what love is, that's then adopted by families in their interpersonal lives. And then it's adopted by the individual as well. And it's this meshing of love and abuse that becomes the norm where you think love literally looks like disowning a family member for being trans or being a lesbian or, you know, whatever that looks like marrying outside the religion. Like you just talked about, even though, you know, there had been a conversion, like it's not good enough. It's not perfection, right? That perfectionism that is so intrinsic in so many religions or masturbating, you know, whatever it is, if that's what God's love looks like and God is perfection, then of course, that's what people think love looks like in the home and in their lives. So I think there's a healing piece here too, around getting really clear on what love actually is. And I think like, this is part of, um, the mental health process is working with a therapist to get unindoctrinated from this idea that love is abuse. I think when we can parse those two things out, right? Like, and be like, abuse goes over here. This is what, this is actually the definition of of abuse. This is what abuse looks like. And this is what love actually looks like, right? And they are 180 degrees away from each other. That's when we can start to redefine love. I think we can start to be like, Oh yeah, my God doesn't abuse and my God isn't violent and my God isn't withholding. My God isn't cruel or or mean. My God truly is a source of love in its purest form. I think when we can start to work through that either with like a new community or, you know, a mental health professional, there are a lot of like spiritual coaches and things like that can that can help. I think that can be a huge healing piece for people too, who want to reconnect with God in a new way. You know, as you were talking, I was really thinking about if there is a God or if I am to conceptualize a God or help somebody conceptualize a God, 
I'm thinking that this God has their best interest in my self-actualization and my client's self-actualization and being true to who they are. People like to say God doesn't make mistakes. Well, people are born gay or they're born trans, you know, and I would like to think, you know, any God that I would conceive of would be happy for somebody to live their, their authentic truth. Yeah. Oh, my God. I love that. That's absolutely true. Yeah. And why would God create women who and like make them want to have sex <laughs> and like give them boobs and like all the things that Brittany was talking about? Yeah. If that if that was a mistake. Yeah. Thank you so much for that willow and and thank you both this has been such a beautiful conversation i can't thank y'all enough for coming on Brittany, you are a trauma-informed health coach if people want to connect with you how can they find you yeah they can um the easiest way is to go to getfoodtherapy.com or uh get food therapy on instagram you can dm me too um, it's really important to me ever since I got reconnected with myself and sorted out my trauma to help other people sort theirs out, especially around like body image and diet culture and all that stuff. So that's what I love to do. I'd love to connect with anyone who's interested in that. Cool. Get food, G E T F O O D therapy.com. That's it. Yep. Cool. And Willow, I know you're currently on sabbatical, but if people want to work with you in the future, is there a way that they can get a hold of you? Yes. So I have a website that's kind of on pause now. It's Pink Chair Psychotherapy, but that may be um, changing. But um, I my name is Willow Katz, K Willow like the tree, K-A-T-Z, um, on Psychology Today. And that's the best way to get in contact with me. Okay, great. And if you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on Insta at the Patrama Party or on my personal Insta at Remy's R E M E E Z. You can also email me at patramaparty at gmail.com. And also, if you have a topic you'd like to hear covered, hit me up. And if you'd like to join the Patrama Party community, you can find us on Facebook. It's a cool group of listeners. Brittany, that's how Brittany and I got connected. We check in with each other about the stuff we're going through and offer support and resources. So if you're into that, just search the Patrama Party and I'll add you. Speaking of support, if this pod has helped you and you have a minute, rate, review, subscribe. It really does help. And I read all the reviews. And if you'd like to support the pod, you can now. You can give a dollar a month, $5, whatever. I pour myself into this podcast. So if you're able and moved to just go to podcasters.spotify.com forward slash pod forward slash show forward slash the Patrama party and scroll down to the support button. But a simpler option is just to go on Spotify and they have that support button right under the Patrama party logo. And until next time, baby, enjoy the party. Bye. The information provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only. None of the material presented is intended to be a substitute for psychotherapy, counseling, professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you need to speak with a professional, find one local to you and reach out directly.